Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. So, uh, continuing our talk on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we um, have obviously talked about his, um, his deity, his personhood. We talked about the connection and the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the other two members of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. And what I thought would be really cool for y'all is to do a survey of the progressive revelation of the Spirit. It's probably something that most Christians will never do in their life. So I thought it'd be cool for y'all to see how the Holy Spirit has been revealed to us in Scripture starting with Genesis and coming all the way through to the New Testament because a lot of people think of the Holy Spirit as a New Testament concept. And of course, the Holy Spirit is emphasized in, a, in the New Testament in a way that never occurred in the Old Testament. As we're going to see, the Old Testament was not uh, primarily Trinitarian, in its revelation of who God is. Um, He chose in his wisdom to, uh, in a way, um, obscure the Trinitarian nature that he has. Of course, we see the Trinity looking back now in hindsight because of what the New Testament has revealed to us and what the apostles revealed and what Christ himself revealed. But if you just were somebody who lived right before Jesus showed up and had read your Old Testament faithfully, it probably wasn't super obvious that God was Trinitarian at that point. But now that we know what we know, we can look back and see um, see the the sun showing up in a big way in the Old Testament and of course we're going to see the Holy Spirit show up and so I thought it'd be cool for us to just walk through the scripture in a progressive way and just do a survey of that and the first place we're going to start of course is the Pentateuch which is uh, the first five books of the Old Testament uh, also known as the Torah the Pentateuch is the Greek word for the first five books penta meaning five so, um, if you're not familiar with the, the fact that there's, there's two versions of the Old Testament, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic um, in parts of Daniel, um, but we, what happened was the Jewish people had been dispersed throughout the, Gre- the Greek-speaking world. Um, they had been what's known as, what we refer to as Hellenized. And so because they wanted their children to be able to read the Old Testament, they decided to translate the Old Testament into Greek at one point. And that is known as the Septuagint, if you just want to take notes on that, if you never heard that idea. The reason it's called the Septuagint is that there is a, a legend, we could call it. Uh, it's based in fact, but we're not really sure how real it is. But what happened apparently is they had 70 scholars go into different rooms and translate the Old Testament. And the 70 scholars all came out and their, te- their translation was identical. All 70 of them had not one difference from one to another, and they considered that to be miraculous, and so um, they, had, they knew that they had the right translation, and that is known as the Septuagint. Interestingly, uh, our Septuagint manuscripts are much older than our Hebrew and Aramaic 
manuscripts today that we have available. We actually have older Greek manuscripts than we have Hebrew. So sometimes if you're wondering what did the Hebrew mean, like a, a Hebrew word could be debated. Did it mean this or that? For instance, there's a, there's a debate amongst liberal scholars around did uh, in Isaiah when it says uh, the virgin shall bear a child, did it mean virgin or did it mean young girl because the word could mean either one? Well, the Greek version doesn't have any room for dispute. The Greek version is just the word virgin. So since it's older than our Hebrew one, we trust in the fact that it's a virgin. Anyway, I'm giving you all a bunch of trivia right now. But so that's the Septuagint. So the, the five books in the Septuagint uh, that start the Bible are known as the Pentateuch. Anyway, uh, Dr. Walter Kaiser said the complete term for the Holy Spirit only occurs in its full form in the Hebrew Bible three times. It may be shocking to you. He, uh, Psalm 51.11, where David prayed for forgiveness after his sin with Bathsheba. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And in Isaiah 63.10 and 11, where the Israelites had grieved the Holy Spirit by rebelling against him. Later, in the same context, Isaiah 63.14, this same Holy Spirit is referred to under the preferred shortened title of the Spirit of God. So, um, the words Holy Spirit exactly like that only occurs three times in the whole entire Old Testament. Um, there are between 378 and 389 references to the quote Spirit of God in the Old Testament mainly using the Hebrew term Ruach which I told y'all last week could also is translated as breath as well. Um, it's the same word. So when we, we're going to talk about that here in a second, but we have to be careful with context and use a lot of contextual clues. Um, we have to take what's known as a dialectic approach to making sure that we know is the Ruach the Holy Spirit that we know of in the New Testament today, or is it just simply breath, uh, Ruach meaning breath, wind, spirit. Yes, sir. Well, exactly, but the word Holy Spirit only occurs three times. So when we're looking at other references to what we now call the Holy Spirit, it doesn't say the words Holy Spirit. We have to look for other contextual clues to know, is it talking about the Holy Spirit, or is it just a breath, or is it some other kind of spirit? For instance, Saul was attacked by a Ruach in Samuel, when he was like, you know, going to the witch, using witchcraft and other things, he was, he was attacked by a divine spirit, but it's a demonic spirit. And so we have to use contextual clues to know that's not the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? But you're correct. The holy would be an adjective. So the word ruach occurs 378 times in the Old Testament and 11 times in Aramaic portions of Daniel. It's usually feminine but occasionally masculine. There are 38 occurrences in the Pentateuch, but none in Leviticus and only two in Deuteronomy. It is a rare in legal material, Old Testament, uh, etc. Okay, so this is just a, 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 from the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament talking about this word. So this is the, this is the number one word we're going to have to define or find that's going to refer to what we would call the Holy Spirit. And just to um, run through those scriptures that I said are where the actual words Holy Spirit show up is Psalm 51.11, Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. This is... Um, 
David praying after his sin with Bathsheba and after he has sent Uriah into the battle to be murdered. And um, what's interesting about Psalm 51, uh, you know, we could do a whole sermon series on Psalm 51 because, you know, uh, David is said to be a man after God's own heart. And he reveals a lot of things about God's nature in Psalm 51 that had been completely foreign uh, to the Jewish understanding at that point. There were two sins which you could not be forgiven for at all and that required the death penalty. One was murder and the other was adultery. David had committed both. And the psalm starts, have mercy on me, O God. He's asking God to do what was understood to be impossible. Um, and then it's within that context that he says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And then Isaiah 63, 10 and 11 but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he became their enemy and fought against them. Then he remembered the days of the past, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit among the flock? Can I ask a question? Just, you may have already covered this since I missed last week. So when it says Holy Spirit, is that an adjective with rock, or is this a Mm-hmm. Yes. It's exactly as it's translate, translated there. Okay. Yep. So this is uh, later in that same passage, like cattle that go down in the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. You led your people this way to make a glorious name for yourself. The Spirit of the Lord is a pretty commonly used phrase. Uh, but even then, we're going to need to have some context because does... Like, did Jesus, the person Jesus, does he have a spirit? Yes. Yes. But when we say the Holy Spirit, that's a whole separate person, right? So when we say, when we read Spirit of the Lord, is it talking about, is it referring to it in the way that we would say Jesus' spirit or the Father's spirit, like who they are? Or is it talking about the third person of the Trinity? That's what we have to really be careful to understand. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. You're saying the Spirit of the Lord, not the Holy Spirit. Well, no, this is the Holy Spirit because it's in the same context as this. And that's what I'm saying is there's a, I'm just showing you the three scriptures where the words Holy Spirit exist in the Old Testament because there's only three. Okay. Dr. Jewett says um, the he. The Hebrews, it would seem, spoke of God in this way because they conceived of him in his essential being as the invisible power or energy behind all that is, the creative breath by which the living creature, indeed the whole universe, is animated. Yet in the context of the Old Testament as a whole, it is evident that this, is, this animating power, this creative breath, is not understood as an impersonal force, but rather a, as a living subject. The personal energy which God is in himself, the breath by which he calls the worlds into being, is in the first instance the energy by which God wills to be who he is. He is who he is by his own act, that is his being, is personal being, being that can be understood only as a self-determined self and I. So what he's saying here is, and this gets, you know, there's lots of examples of this with the Hebrew people, but even though they didn't understand God to be Trinitarian, in, when they refer to the Spirit of God as this second person, it doesn't, they don't talk of him as a force even then. 
They talk of him as having personality, as having will, as having his own essence. Does that make sense? Okay. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. This follows um, the same idea of his breath or his ruach has power. And we saw, uh, we're going to see here in a second, in that, you know, we saw before we were looking at his divinity that he was, at, he was involved in, in essential to creation itself, the Holy Spirit was. He was very active in creation. Okay, so out of all the passages in the first five books of the Bible, there are six that I think are critical that can give us a good understanding of um, how the Holy Spirit is presented in the Pentateuch. The first is Genesis 1-2, which is the work of the Spirit of God in creation. Then Genesis 2-7, which is him breathing the breath of life into Adam. Genesis 6-3, the Spirit operates as a judge over the sins of a reprobate society prior to Noah's flood. Uh, for, by the way, speaking of the flood, did y'all see that they just discovered what is the largest set of dinosaur bones ever uncovered? pretty crazy it's like gigantic this thing yeah and it's i forget where it was like was it honduras where was it, it was somewhere in south america yeah no no that's a different one yeah that one's in uh maine wasn't it no missouri maybe yeah missouri just since we're talking about this 13 seconds on this, probably a little longer than that, but really short. There's just, uh, as an apologetic point, do you understand that a fossil requires a very specific set of circumstances to create? So like if a, if a, if a deer was to die on the road out here, would it become a fossil? What would happen to it? It would, it would just disintegrate, right? Okay. Well, in order for there to be a fossil, you need three ingredients. A lot of water, a lot of mud, and a lot of pressure right now. It's like a flood. It's Crazy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yep. Yep. So, like, for instance, like, another discovery that happened uh, in the, this past summer, I didn't put this in Telegram, but it was this past summer, is they found, um, uh, what's the what's the big shark that's extinct? What's it called? A megalodon? Huh? Megalodon. Is it megalodon? Yeah. They found megalodon teeth in rivers in, not Colorado, Nebraska. A river in Nebraska had megalodon teeth. How do you get teeth from an ocean into the center of a continent if it's not covered in water. Yeah. Anyway, let's keep going. So, he was involved before Noah's flood. Genesis 41, 38, Joseph was able to interpret Pharaoh's dream. So Pharaoh himself asked the question, can we find anyone like this man who, in whom is the Spirit of God? So uh, we're going to see the whole Joseph's narrative involves the Holy Spirit quite a bit. Numbers 11 um, this is the anointing of the 70 elders when the Israelites are complaining 
uh, and grumbling that they don't have meat. Um, for instance, here in Numbers eleven twenty five, then the Lord descended in the cloud and spoke to him. He took some of the spirit who was on Moses and placed the spirit of the, on the seventy elders. As the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they never did it again. Um, and by the way, we're going to cover. We're going to go through all of these in detail. I'm just giving you an overview. And then uh, Numbers twenty two through twenty four. This is the weird story of the prophet Balaam, who. Um, was the, the the Israelites show up on the doorstep of the king of Moab. The king of Moab's not fired up about that. He really doesn't like them there because he knows that when the Israelites show up, big cities like Jericho fall down magically. So um, he asked this guy, Balaam, to come um, curse the Israelites. God tells him, you don't want to do that. <laughs> he tells him in you know some pretty interesting ways, and yet um, he ends up, showing up to do the cursing anyway, but then um, because the Holy Spirit is speaking through him, um, he ends up not cursing the Israelites. He ends up cursing um, the Moabites. So um, just one passage from that is uh, when Balaam looked up and saw Israel in camp tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came on him and he proclaimed his poem. Okay, so let's take a closer look at each one of those uh, six kind of examples that'll serve as earmarks for us. So we looked at this one already. Genesis 1, 2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. We looked last time at that word hovering is the Hebrew word rahab and it implies a nurturing like a mother over her young so the Holy Spirit is hovering over the formless um, earth, and it's like in this nurturing uh, situation, um, ready to be a part of the creation um, events. And then that leads us <coughs> excuse me, to Genesis 2, where in Genesis 2, 7 it says, The Lord formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Um, you could paraphrase this. I wrote this. Yahweh God, as a potter, molded the first human Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Um, it uses the word neshma here as a synonym for ruach. Breathe the neshma, um, which is an it neshma is like breath, but it has this idea of. Um, the animating principle of life itself. It's like the stuff life gets made of. God's breath is his gift that he gives and started this whole respiration process and is the thing that makes somebody animated, somebody alive. And um, we see in Job 34.14, Job 36.4, and Isaiah 2.23, this same idea is referred to of the neshma. Genesis 6, understand that I am bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. This is the, uh, the breath of life is the Ruach Hamin, or Hayim, rather. Uh, so this is God saying, I'm about to destroy every creature under heaven. Everything that has the, this Ruach that I gave I'm going to take it all away. So I gave the animating principle, and I'm going to take it all back. We're not equating that to the, the personhood of the Holy Spirit or 
No. This is just, is it, would we say it's God's essence or just yeah, so, power of, uh, of life? Yeah, so basically we're going to see ultimately there's going to be this really cool parallel because when we are made when we are made alive as humans we receive the ruach right we receive this animating essence of god essentially it's god in us even then that allows us to even have life he is the sustainer of life then we're going to see in the new testament when a person is born again what happens they receive the Holy Spirit. So it's the, there's this parallel situation where the thing that animates the life of the Christian is the Holy Spirit in the same way that the thing that animates all life is actually, you know, I don't want to be heretical, but just for our brains to get like a little bit of the Holy Spirit, right? Like there's a, there's a little bit of divinity inside of every person that is why we're alive. And to contrast maybe, so when David said don't, Remove the Holy Spirit. It mm-hmm. wouldn't be the same as if no. we were and the Holy Spirit removed from us. There's, uh, it's more of God's presence, but versus indwelling. Yeah. Well, and what we're going to see too, we're we're going to cover that in detail because what we're going to see is obviously the Holy Spirit was very active in the revelation of God, right? Like we've already looked at that. Like the Scriptures were written by the Holy Spirit. And David is obviously writing the Psalms and those sorts of things. And so the Holy Spirit was indwelling him to author all of this revelation in a unique way. And that's what he didn't want to have taken from him, is the presence of God to allow him to do that. Yeah. Is the breath of life different for animals than it was for animals? Yeah, so it's it's so funny because... uh, Yes, it was different, but it is the same word, ruach, that is given to the animals. But the thing that's different about it is that they don't have this divine essence as a part of what they receive. I'm going to have to change my song a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you think about it, there's the soulish creatures. Yep. Then you get down to, you know, insects and ants and things that aren't soulish. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know your dog is, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, of course. So, my dog's called the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, I there you go. <laughs> I've had a few that felt like they had a little bit of Lucifer in them. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still amazing that a, a mosquito knows what to do. That's what I always. So, so you ask this question. This is it. So, animals, two of every creature that have the breath of life. This breath of life, Ruach Hayim, is the exact same thing as this. So it's both humans and non-humans have that in them. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.